So that brings us to the seventh command. You should not commit adultery. Now, adultery was considered the great sin. Every culture. America is pretty much the first culture in human history who's basically come to all adultery and began to label it okay. We're the first culture in human history, and I would throw Europe up there with too, but the modern-day Western world is the first culture ever to begin to label adultery okay. It was considered the great sin, and it was punishable by death by every culture, even the most heathen of cultures. It was punishable by death. And basically, the, that your and why this is held up as a great commandment, it doesn't say you shouldn't like dishonor your friend. <laughs> you shouldn't be unfaithful to your friend. It says only your spouse, because the only covenant that you'll ever make that gets anywhere close to your covenant with God is a marriage covenant. And the idea is if you can't honor that covenant, then how in the world are you going to covenant, honor a covenant with God? And your marriage is supposed to tell the truth about God. And your marriage of your unconditional love to your spouse is supposed to tell the truth about God's unconditional love for us, no matter what. Now, God doesn't promise it's going to be happy-go-lucky and easy because it's not happy-go-lucky easy for him to put up with us either. I mean, he even says in the Gospels, how much longer must I put up with this generation? So even Christ had his patient limits, but he still died for them, and he still stayed committed to them. And so what God is commanding here is, if you really truly are going to reflect the image of God, then you need to treat your covenant with your spouse as if it's the covenant with God, because that's the only covenant that people really truly can see. And if they see that kind of commitment to a human who is flawed, then would not not scream volumes about a divine, perfect God's commitment for us. If you as an imperfect person can stay committed to an imperfect person, then how much more will a perfect being stay committed to them if they accept Christ? And so sexual union is the way that two people come together and they're bonded together. And so what God is saying is that this sex, this union has made you married. And God takes this so seriously that he says, even if you sleep with other people without saying your vows in front of people, God still kind of considers that marriage. And you're marrying yourself off to multiple people. Now, God doesn't go all the way and say you literally are this polygamist. But he's trying to show you how seriously he takes the sexual union bond. Now, once again, Christ comes along and says, you've heard it said, do not have anger, but I tell you that any person has lust has violated this command. Now, first of all, I want to say, it's often thought that lust is a man's sin. It's not. Okay? First, men and women just lust in different ways. Men are a lot more visual, and so it's easy for women, or men to even think about women, that if they're not as visual, then they don't have a lust problem. And the church has sold that for a long time. Mostly because, unfortunately, a lot of church leaders are also not psychologists. Okay? Women do lust. They lust in an emotional way. And this is why romance novels make so much money. That's lust. Okay? Fantasizing about a relationship that you shouldn't be in whether it's physical, visual, or emotional, that's lust. If you're watching that chick flick, 
and you're watching him gaze into her eyes and he says, you complete me. And you begin to fantasize, oh, if my husband would just look at me like that, that's lust. If you begin now, it's one thing to think, okay, I wish my husband would do that. But then if you begin to dwell on that and fantasize, and it's hard to get that image out of your head of that guy's face, that's lust. If you begin to use this as an escape mechanism, it's lust. And so lust is just desiring something that you are not allowed to be with or have, or, and you want it, and you're thinking about it. In this sense, and this isn't what the command is talking about, but remember, lust goes into everything. Coveting, money, power, whatever. It's what you fantasize about. And if what you're fantasizing about is not what you're allowed to have or what you've not been committed to, then that's lust. And that's what Christ is speaking to. Now, second is this. The newest studies have now shown that almost... More than 25% of porn is viewed by women now. That we have been bombarded with so much skin in our average... I mean, you can turn on commercials anymore. I haven't watched commercials and television in a long time. A lot of times the shows I watch now are like on Netflix or I get DVDs from the libraries and stuff. So that means I'm very, very selective. And I can pick things. And so one time we went and I watched, a sh- I haven't watched television like regular television for a long time, like just flipping through channels. And my wife and I went to a hotel and we were really exhausted. So we just turned on the cable and it's been years since we watched cable. We're flipping through channels. And some of the stuff they're showing on television now, just CBS and stuff is like, holy crap. Like this has like changed a lot from when I was in high school and college. Because that was the last time I just flipped through channels basically. And the, the, the advertisements, the billboards, and that kind of stuff, we have actually been bombarded with so much skin that is actually rewiring young girls' brains to become more sexually visual. They're actually rewiring girls' brains. And now women are now viewing almost as much porn as men. By the age of 12 years old, one out of four teenagers, both men and girls, have already had sex and by the age of 15, one out of four have already have a sexually transmitted disease. Women are now considered more sexually aggressive on college campuses than men are because of the culture we live in. This is not a man problem. This is a human problem. And it always has been, but we somehow bought into the lie that it wasn't. And now that our culture is going downhill sexually and morally, it's becoming obvious that it never was a man problem. It's a heart problem. And everybody is tempted to fantasize about something that they don't have and they shouldn't have, and it comes in all different forms. And once again, you can apply everything I talked about the murder. You might think, oh, it's just in my mind. But if you were viewing my three daughters like that in your head, you and I would never have a relationship. And you're doing this to God's daughters or sons. And eventually thoughts become actions. And you may not fully act upon it, but you will act on it in certain ways. Because no one would ever want that to be happening to them. Nobody would want this to happen to their daughter or their son. Therefore, why would you do that to somebody else's? 
You shall not steal. Now, I know everybody has stolen at least one thing, if it just is a paper clip from work, okay? But most of us probably think, well, I'm not a klepto and I don't really steal, okay? Most of us. But then remember, stealing is not just stealing physical things, because one should extrapolate this. The stealing is obvious. There's no, like, thing here. But here's what the reality is. You can steal people's time. You can steal people's emotions. You can steal people's energy. You can steal people's ideas. If you're chronically late all the time that nobody can get anything done because they're always waiting for you and they lose five minutes here, 10 minutes here, five minutes there, 10 minutes there, and it adds up eventually over time. I mean, have you ever read those things of how many hours you spend brushing your teeth, how many hours you spend like sneezing, and yet over a lifetime you're like, holy crap, that's a lot of hours that I spent just brushing my teeth or cleaning my ears out. And you're thinking, wow, that could have gotten a lot done if I didn't have that problem. That's the same thing with chronically being late all the time. You remember, time is the one thing that you're always spending and you can never make more of. And if you're constantly taking that from people all the time, and they're always waiting for you, or you're always wasting it with your meetings that have no relevance at all, and you could have said it in two minutes. We've all been there, right? (laughs) You really need to seriously consider not only your own time and what you're doing it and how you're using it for the kingdom of God, but how you're using other people's time. You're going to be an emotional vampire. Some people have friends or have been that friend where all you do every time, you ever have know somebody who every time you're with them, they're just constantly complaining and it's drama and they're just sucking the emotions out of you as you listen to this and everything is overdramatic and everything's the end of the world and all they can think about is themselves. My wife had this friend before we were married and she would literally, every time they got together, she'd just talk about how horrible everything was all the time and never ask my wife, once how she was one time she called my wife up on her birthday my wife's birthday and just complain 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 for like two hours about the most stupid stuff possible and then hung up and it took her a month before she realized it was my wife's birthday that day that's theft now i'm not saying you can never do that to people we all go through depression we all have loss of love or job or whatever and there's a time where our friend needs to be a friend to us and just let us vent. And we need that. And there might be times in our life where we're so depressed and we're so beaten down by life that we might be a drain on our friend for several days or weeks or months at a time. But if you never come out of that, and you never, year after year after year after year, never ever value that person, ask about them or that kind of stuff, you're always just draining them. That's a problem. That's theft. Because there's going to be a time that they're going to need thus to be that for them. But we know the difference between a friend who's just in need and they're going to be a drain on us for a while and that person who is always a drain. That's emotional theft. You can take people's ideas. We know that's plagiarism, but it comes in all different forms. You can steal things physically from people. Theft comes in all different ways. And if you truly love that person, then you're not going to take from them without depositing back. And we can do this in marriage, too. 
every marriage counseling I've ever been to, every book that I've ever read, all talks about deposits. And if you're constantly, if you never deposit into your spouse's emotional needs, quality time, words of affection, whatever, then you're just going to take from them and you're never giving to them. And that's theft. And so this comes in all different forms and sizes. And what God is saying is this isn't about you saying, wow, that's kind of harsh. This is about God saying, but this is what it means to love them. This is what it means to love them. The ninth commandment is thou, you will not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Now, this starts off with a court. And what this is specifically not talking about is not just you shall not lie, though I'm not saying that's okay, but it's specifically talking that you're not allowed to intentionally bear false testimony about a neighbor and the court system. So when you're under oath and you're testifying, you're not allowed to give false testimony. You're not allowed to make somebody look out to be something that they're not. You're not allowed to say that they did something they didn't do or they didn't do something that they did do or whatever. You're not allowed to stand up there and swear and give false testimony. But it also gets extrapolated outside of the courtroom. And what God is more interested in is not just the blatant, you shall not lie, like, hey, did you steal the toothbrush? And your little kid's like, no. And you're like, that's lying. That's a violation of the commandments. Yes, it is. That's kind of obvious. But what God is more concerned with is how this bears on your neighbor. And it's the false testimony against your neighbor. And most specifically, this hits at the heart of gossip. When you're like, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe what Becky just did. Okay? That's false testimony. See, we know the lying is wrong. It gets beaten into us and we beat it into our kids. But we often excuse the gossip. And we talk about people when they're not there. And you say, oh, but it's so true. She really did to do this. In a way, I'm being loving to all my neighbors because they need to know that she did this thing and they need to be protected from her and this horrible thing that Becky just did. But that's still false testimony. And here's how it's false testimony, even if she really did do it. Because I can walk into a lot of moments in your life and I can see you doing something, yelling at your kids in a way that you might have shouldn't have been or whatever, and take a snapshot of you and hold it up and you're like, no, that's not me all the time. Uh, yes, I admit I did wrong. I should have never done that. But that's not who I am in my entirety. But if I take that image and show it to everybody all the time and say, you really did this, you really did this, you really did this, I am telling the truth, Right? But if I show that to everybody enough times, what do I begin to communicate to them? This is what you're like all the time. And that's false testimony. That's why gossip is so dangerous. Because you're not just saying something that they did. It's one thing to say, well, they did something wrong and I'm going to report it to the people who will deal with it accordingly. The church pastors or the law or the spouse or the parents or whatever. There's nothing wrong with telling. Tattletailing is not saying, hey, they did this thing wrong. You need to do that. Tattletailing and gossip is when you think, oh, I'm going to get something out of this. Everybody's going to think I am that good person or look at them. They're so funny as I tell these stories. 
you get some kind of feed out of it. And that's the false testimony. Because you constantly share that all the time, and everybody gets the impression that that's what they're like all the time. And they're not. And you're not doing it to help them become a better person. What you really should do is say, Becky, what I saw was you just did this. How can I help you be better because I love you? And I'm willing to sacrifice my time for you to be better. And so God is specifically dealing with this false testimony, painting a picture of people that is not true. This goes with political campaigns. Well, I mean, I know most of us are kind of sick and tired of the political candidate constantly talk about all the horrible bad things that they did. But sometimes you kind of feel like, oh, but I kind of need to know that, right? Because I'm going to vote right. Ah. Look, John Kasich. I don't agree with all of his views. I don't even know if I would have voted for him. I was so confused this past election. The last two elections, I've been so confused. I have no idea what to do. So I'm not putting up approval here. But the one thing I respected John Kasich for, um, right, John? Yeah, I just went blank. It sounded wrong at first. I knew it was right. If you notice him in the debates and stuff, he was the only guy who wasn't constantly interrupting the other guys all the time. And he was the only one not throwing mud at everybody. He never smeared anybody. He never talked about their failures or mistakes. And he never interrupted anybody. And I don't mean like there might have been a few times in the and there, but not like trying to get it in, trying to get it in and that kind of stuff. And you had to at least respect him as a Christian who his life in that moment, you may not agree with everything politically, you might have not voted for him, but he did tell the truth about God as he ran for presidency and the way his character was. And you had to at least respect him for that. And his daughters, who I do know, they have good things to say about him. And usually your children are the most accurate testimony <laughs> on what somebody's really like. And they're pretty honest. They'll tell you straight up what they think. And that, is, that said something. I was impressed with that. I wanted to vote for him just for that. <laughs> okay, if Just to have someone of that kind of a character. And I'm not saying he's perfect, and I'm not saying that he hasn't screwed up in other areas and that kind of stuff, because none of us are. But to go through that whole thing and stay consistent and not fall into all the other crap, that says a lot. And that's what God is talking about. It's the way that you talk about people. It's the way, the image that you present of them. And it can even be, don't bear false testimony about yourself. The way that you present yourself to other people. And so this is God, because nobody wants their reputation, their image to be smeared, even if it's accurate. The only person that should really be stepping up and saying all the horrible things that happened in my life is me when I publicly confess my sins. That's the only person who really truly has that right. Now, I know there's all these gray areas and there's all these case-by-case scenarios because the Ten Commandments were never meant to be this one-size-fits-all rubber stamp on every single scenario in life. But remember, we talked about this last week. The law now is the Holy Spirit that's in our lives. And what we're now supposed to do is take these laws and realize this is the heart of God. And now when I face my friend, in this unique situation that doesn't seem to be a cookie-cut scenario of thou shalt not bear false testimony. I pray and I ask the Holy Spirit, how do I extrapolate this law here? 
because the way that I extrapolate this law with her, it might be different than the way I extrapolate with them and the way that I extrapolate it with that person. But all in all, I realize that this is the heart of God and that this is what I'm striving for. And then I take this before the Holy Spirit and I go into each individual unique scenario and I ask, how do I apply this? And that's what God meant by, on the day will come, well, I will write this on your hearts. It means for the first time ever, we won't look at this and think, okay, don't murder. That's easy. I haven't done it. Check, move on. Now, for the first time ever, we have a Holy Spirit that's in us who can convict us of the deeper issue of murder and can help us deal with each unique scenario of the murder in my heart or the murder in somebody else's heart that I'm trying to love on. And that is the ultimate law. But this is where I start. Because sometimes it's hard to interpret the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's hard to listen to Him. Sometimes our own desires get in the way. Sometimes we're just too busy. And so this is a good place to start and lets me know that the Holy Spirit is saying something about this. And now it begins to train my ears to listen to Him talk. And that's the purpose of this law. This law is still good. We're not under it anymore. But it's still the heart of God. And it still gives us a beginning start just like you can go to marriage conference. And the marriage conference will help me understand what it means to think like a woman because that's completely foreign to me. And it'll help you understand what it's like to think like a man because that's completely foreign to you. But ultimately, your husband and your wife is not a cookie-cut scenario of every man and every woman. And so the marriage conference gives you a good idea what the language of your spouse is so that it'll help you better communicate to your spouse and say, now what do you feel and how can I help you? And that's exactly what the law is doing. It's helping you understand the language and the heart of God so that now you know what questions to ask the Holy Spirit when you say, now what should I do and how should I think? Does that make sense? And that's where the law is good. We're not under it anymore, but we still treasure the law because sometimes I have no idea what questions to even ask the Holy Spirit. And this gives me a starting point.